Please turn in your Bible to Matthew 5. In your Bible to Matthew 5, if you have a phone, if you have a tablet that has an app on it, go ahead and use it. If you don't have either of those, go ahead and find a Pew Bible. And on the Pew Bible, it is on page 1501, Matthew chapter 5. Can be found there. Two weeks ago, if you remember, we missed last week, obviously, because of the snow that came. wasn't as much as we thought that was going to come, but snow came nonetheless. But a couple weeks ago, we started looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we looked first at the Beatitudes, where Jesus begins in His Sermon on the Mount. He begins with what we often know as the Beatitudes. And if you remember, this is His way of blessing His disciples. This is His way of announcing blessing Onto them. He was telling them that as his true followers, they were in this privileged position of blessing as a result of being in God's kingdom, as a result of Jesus coming and he was the king and he was setting up his kingdom, as a result of being kingdom followers, these disciples would be in this privileged position of blessing. And one of the things that was important to know is that being in this position of blessing had nothing to do with the disciples' own goodness, right? This, this privileged position of blessing had nothing to do with the fact that the disciples were somehow great in and of themselves. It was because God was great that he was able to announce them as privileged, as being in this privileged position of blessing. But if you remember in the last beatitude, and then the, that transitional sentence right after the last beatitude, Jesus says something to his disciples that would have been completely startling. It would, it would have shaken them. When they heard Jesus' words, it would have shaken them up a little bit. Look down in verse 10, so we can see that again. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he's all of a sudden talking about this, this persecution that may come upon the disciples. But all throughout the Beatitudes, Jesus has said, Blessed are those who are this. Blessed are those who are that. Blessed are those who are persecuted, and so on. But then look what Jesus does in verse 11. He he switches it a little bit. He says, blessed are you. So he goes from saying, blessed are those, to blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So he goes really from speaking generally, in in a general sense of his disciples here, to speaking directly directly, to them. Blessed are you when people persecute you. So this is in the context of our passage as we move into talking about being salt and light. The context is persecution. Jesus is saying, this is what the world is going to do to you. The persecution is going to come. The insults are going to come. The, the people talking false things about you because you follow me. All of that is going to come just because you carry my name. Just because you attach the name Jesus to yourself, persecution is going to come. But as we transition into our passage this morning, Jesus moves to what his disciples are and will be in the world. So when we connect these two texts, Jesus is saying, this is what the world is going to do to you. But, this is, but now, this is what you are going to be in the world. This is what you are in the world. You're going to be salt. You're going to be Light. Look at the text with me in Matthew 5. Let's start in verse 11. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you 
and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A a city on a hill, it can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray one more time. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that it won't grow dull to us. I pray that it'll remain sharp and and pierce our hearts. Lord, I pray that we'll see you this morning as the perfect example of what it means to be salt and light in a world that needs both. Lord, give us grace to understand now. In Christ's name, amen. Many of you who follow the news uh, have no doubt heard of the beheadings that occurred in the country of Libya recently. 21 Egyptian Christians were taken to a beach in Libya and were simultaneously beheaded by terrorists for simply being Christians. And a man named Bashir, he was a brother of two of the men that were beheaded. He was interviewed on what appeared to be some kind of TV show, Christian TV show a few days ago. And he was asked about the beheadings of his brothers. The video is online. You can go and watch the beheadings. And so they asked him about it. What was it like to watch your brothers beheaded and so on? But when he was initially asked about his brothers, this is what Bashir said. He said, I am proud of them. They make me walk, raising my head up in pride. His brothers were 25 and 23 years old when they were executed on that beach. He said that the terrorist group, and it was that terrorist group, ISIS, that killed his brothers. He says that they gave more than we asked when they didn't edit out the part where they, the 21 men, declared their faith and called Jesus Christ. He went on to say that the terrorist group helped us strengthen our faith. The interviewer asked this brother, who again, whose name was Bashir, how his family was doing in light of all of these events. And how's your mom doing in light of your brothers being executed and so on. And this is what he said. Believe me when I tell you that they are happy and congratulating one another. They are not in a state of grief, but congratulating one another for having so many from our village die as martyrs. We are proud of them. He goes on to say, since the Roman times, we as Christians have been targeted to be martyred. This only helps us to endure such crisis because the Bible tells us to love our enemies and to bless those who curse us. The interviewer kept on asking him questions. And Bashir said this. He said, today I was having a chat with my mother, asking her what she would do if she saw one of the ISIS members in the street. And she said this. I am repeating it honestly, not because I am on air. She said she would invite him home because he helped us enter into the kingdom of heaven. He goes on. I asked her, what will you do if you see those ISIS members passing on the street? And I told you, that's the man who slayed your son. She said, I will ask for God to open his eyes and ask him in our house because he helped us enter the kingdom of God. Bashir goes on to pray during the program. Dear God, please open 
their eyes to be saved and quit their ignorance and the wrong teachings they were taught. The kingdom belongs to a man like that. The kingdom belongs to those 21 men. The kingdom belongs to a woman who will look at somebody who murdered her sons and say, come into my home. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Jesus says, this is what the world is going to do to you. The world will persecute you. This is going to happen, and this has been happening for thousands of years. Our brothers and sisters, not just in this isolated incident a week or so ago of the beheadings, this is happening all the time. Our brothers and sisters all over the world are being persecuted because they won't let go of Jesus. But Jesus says this is going to happen. And it has been happening for thousands of years. It happened to the prophets even before Christ came on the scene. And this morning he's going to use two metaphors. He's going to use two analogies or two images to help us understand how we are to be in these times of persecution. And really any time, but even specifically in times of persecution. But first we're to be salt. Jesus says, you're to be the salt of the earth. Look again in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So he says, you're to be the salt of the earth. So if we break this down a little bit, just starting with the word you, you are to be the salt of the earth. Who is he meaning by you? He's talking to his disciples. You disciples are to be the salt of the earth. And he says, so he's saying, you disciples are the salt of the earth. And this is important because if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you claim to follow after Jesus, and you'll say, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus. He's saying, you are the salt. So you don't get a choice in the matter. So whatever it means to be salt as disciples, this is what you are. So he's not even saying, this is something that you can be, or this is something that you should be, or this is something that I want you to aspire to be. I want you to aspire to be salt. He's not saying that. He's saying, you are salt. But there are several uses for salt, aren't there? The first thing that salt is good for is taste. It's incredible what salt can do to a meal, isn't it? you got that bland meal in front of you. You just shake a few magic crystals of salt on it, and all of a sudden, it's like you're sitting at a five-course restaurant, right? I mean, anybody else had that experience? Not that Bethany ever makes a bland meal. But if there's rice or something, and I just throw some salt on it, all of a sudden it goes from bland to good. So salt is good for food. Salt changes everything. It changes the whole taste of something. It makes bad things better, and it makes good things even better. So salt is good for taste, for food. But the second thing salt is good for is for healing. If you have like an open wound or something, you pull salt on it. It might hurt, but it'll dry the area. It'll help it from, keep, from getting infected. But then the third thing that salt is good for is salt is good as a preservative, especially in these days where Jesus is teaching. They would take meat and they would rub salt in it in order to preserve the meat from growing any kind of rot. So they obviously didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have their freezers to just throw the meat in. So they take the meat, they'd rub salt all over it to keep it from Rotting, And so right now you might be thinking, why in the world do I need to know what salt is good for? Why do I need to know that? But the reason you need to know what salt is good for is so that you can know what we're good for, right? If Jesus says that we're to be salt, 
Well, we need to know what we're good for then. We need to know how he intends to use us. And I think that the main way that Jesus is referring to us as salt is that we're supposed to be a preservative. Not necessarily taste, not necessarily healing. Those things might be involved. But the key is the preservative. Jesus wants us to be salt like we're preserving. Disciples of Christ are to be a preservative. We're to preserve the earth. We're to be the salt of the earth. But the key thing to remember when it comes to salt is that salt is only useful when it contacts something, right? Salt is only good for tasting if it contacts your food. Salt is only good for healing something if it contacts that wound. Salt is only good for preserving meat if it contacts the meat and so on. So otherwise, it would be useless. You can't salt salt. You can make something taste really salty, but you can't make salt any more salty by adding salt onto it. So the question that automatically has to come to our minds, that if God has called us the salt of the earth, and if he has called us to preserve the earth, what is that going to look like? So let me give you a couple guiding ideas. Being the salt of the earth means being the salt of the earth. It's really intelligent, isn't it? Being the salt of the earth means being the salt of the earth. And what I mean is this. Jesus isn't saying to be the salt of the church. He's saying to be the salt of the earth. So Jesus isn't talking about ministering to other Christians in this context. He's talking about ministering to the earth. The earth here representing society and our community and the people outside of our faith family. So we need to be the salt of the earth, not the salt of the church. And the second thing is this. Being the salt of the earth means being salt wherever God has you. So you're to be the salt of the earth. In other words, we're to be salt wherever God has us in the location or the profession or the association. Whatever he has us involved in, we're to be the salt of the earth. God has most of us either in or around the town of Windsor. So locationally, for us, this is where God wants us to be salt. This is the area of the world where he has for this church to, to, to preserve. But this also applies to our professions. We're to be salt in our workplaces. We're even to be salt in whatever kind of association we may be involved with, whether it's the school or the fair or ladies' aid or whatever kind of association you're involved with, you're to be salt. So wherever God has placed you, wherever he has you, he's rubbing you into the earth. He's rubbing you into that association. He's rubbing you into that school. He's rubbing you into this town in order to preserve it, in order to slow the decay. And, and so there's this incredibly important social or, or community element to all of this. Talk about being a preservative. To go further with Jesus' illustration, it's like he's saying the earth is that slab of meat. That slab of meat that, needs, that is rotting and it's decaying. And so as disciples, you're going in and you're going to preserve it. You're going to be rubbed into it. You're going to slow down that rot. That's what I meant a few weeks ago when I mentioned in the sermon that our, ta- our, 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 our church here should be considered indispensable to this town. We need to be at a point where we're indispensable to this town. If our church closed its doors... And unbelievers could care less. If they didn't even know it, if they didn't even bother them, then we haven't been salt. That's the key. If we pulled out and we shut our doors and we left and they were like, oh, okay, well, whatever. Then we haven't been salt. We haven't been what God has called us to be. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to be salt? How are we going to be the salt of the earth in Windsor, in Jefferson, in wherever you're living? 
about a month ago, we sat in our members meeting at the middle to end of January, and we discussed different ministries. What, what could we do? What could we do around the community? What, what, how could we be of a help? And so somebody came up with the idea of the day of caring, where we could give items away. So a lot of you brought in different items from your house, and we still have some items in the back you can pick. And we had items around the church, and we loaded up a bunch of tables and said, hey, come, take, come, take for free. People would walk in and just walk out with boxes of stuff just to help them out a little bit. So over this past weekend, that's what we did. Family after family walked into this room and grabbed different items that they needed or wanted. And this is a great illustration of being salt of the earth. Those of you who helped with this and those of you who donated to this, you were helping slow the decay. You were helping your community. Something as simple as helping the basic needs of somebody in their home is an example of being a salt of the earth. But even beyond that, there is so much opportunity to help in situations in our community and in our society as a whole where sin is quite literally corroding the, the society and corroding our communities. And God calls us to be salt in these situations. God calls us to go in and to stop the rot from growing. When sin begins to have its free reign in society and our communities, they always begin to erode. And you see examples of, of this all throughout the Bible. You remember back with me, way back in Genesis, where you have Noah's flood. Well, what was the whole reason for God to destroy the earth? Because the earth had become so corrupt and so vile that he wanted to start over again. So he said, hey, Noah, we're going to build an ark and we're going to save you and your family, but I'm going to kill everybody else. You have another illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah also in Genesis, where God decides to destroy the city because of the corruption there. You can even think of in the end when God takes the earth and he's going to consume it with fire and he's going to purify it and he's going to burn out all of the rot. But until then, we are to seek to slow the decay. There are widows to help. There are foster children to adopt. There are pregnancy centers to help at. There are food pantries to help at. There are so many ways to get involved to help to slow the decay in society and in our communities. Look again at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. So you're to be the salt of the earth, but there's that, that tendency or that possibility that we lose our saltiness. That the salt will lose its ability to be good for anything except to be walked on. And the sad reality is that Christians really don't care to be salt. Confession time. I don't really care to be salt a lot of times. I don't often care to seek out the rot and to help slow the decay. Why? Because being salt is hard work. Being salt takes intentionality. Being salt takes a lot of time. Being salt can even take our money. But being called by Jesus, being called salt by Jesus as Christians, we're notoriously known for being unsalty, even though he's called us to be salt. And then we wonder why we're often considered completely irrelevant to the world. We have the ability to help prevent further corrosion in our community and our society, but we refuse to do it because it's tough. It's not easy. To go again with the illustration, if the earth is that rotting slab of meat, then the salt has to come in contact with the meat in order to preserve it. The salt won't do 
the meat any good if it stays in the salt shaker. But for so many of us, including me, we are refusing to come into contact with the rot, especially when we consider, again, the context of the passage. When we think of the possibility of being persecuted, and then we think of having to be salt while we're being persecuted. We don't like that, but we're to be the salt of the earth. We're to preserve the earth. We're to come in contact with the rot as salt and slow the decay. And not only are you to be salt, not only are you to function as that preservative in our community, in our society, but we're also to be light. Look down in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give, it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good work deeds and, or works and praise your Father in heaven. John Stott puts our task as light this way. The world is like a dark night, but you are to be the world's light. This is the responsibility of the Christian. The world is, as Stott says, it's a dark night. As disciples of Jesus, we're to be lights in this darkness. But not just any kind of light. We're, we're to be the kind of light that can't be hidden. Like a city on a hill in a land of darkness. You're impossible to miss. Nowadays, a, a city filled with light isn't an uncommon thing. Every city is filled with light. But in these days, in Jesus' days, to say you're to be a city on a hill... It's, it's imagining that this city with just light all over the place and just darkness all around. Maybe we could kind of put it in our context a little bit. Like a lighthouse on the coast, on the dark coast, in a storm. We're to be that kind of a light. I've recently seen different nighttime satellite pictures of North Korea. And when you look at the images, you can see that all the countries that surround North Korea, you have Japan on one side, China on another side, and then, of course, you have South Korea underneath. But at nighttime, all three of those countries are completely lit up. But when you look at North Korea, it's basically pitch black. It's pitch black. There's no, there's no light there. There's no light shining in the darkness. And that is telling. The lack of light and the rampant darkness tells us more than, the, more than just of the fact that they don't have electricity. It tells us that they have deep problems within their system, within their government, and so on. And the same is true spiritually. If we could somehow take a spiritual satellite picture of, of the state of Christianity in Maine, or if we could somehow take a, 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 a spiritual satellite picture of our country, and then our state, and then our town, what would it look like? What would our town look like? Would there be any brightness here at all? Would it even be known that there are some Christians here who are seeking to be lights? I've mentioned the statistics before, and, and somebody mentioned it actually in Sunday school, but Becky Folsom shared with me yet another Gallup poll saying that Maine is tied for second, second to worst in, in church attendance. So the state of Maine, we are number 49 in church attendance out of all 50 states. But this is where God has called us to be light. And in a lot of ways, because Maine is so dark spiritually, we're able to be effective lights. When you're driving down 32 and there's no street lights like where I grew up, there's street lights all over the place. You're just driving the pitch black, you're turning the high beams. You can see for a long way. And so spiritually speaking, when we live in the town of Windsor and we live 
in Maine, since it is so spiritually dark here, just the fact that you are a Christian, just the fact that you do have that light, you are able to expose a lot of darkness here. Look at our text again in verse 14. You're to be the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So Jesus says that when you're in a dark house and you light up the candles, you don't put them in under a bowl. When the power goes out, like it does way too often in Maine, you, when you light up your candles, is the first thing you do stick them under a bowl? No, you, you put it in a central location. You put it in a place where it's going to give a lot of light. The candlelight is going to push away the darkness and it gives light to everyone in the house. And this is what it is like to be a Christian in a dark place. As we walk through life and encounter the darkness, we're to be light and to push away the darkness. So there's that, again, that intentionality to this. Like, you have to be intentional to be salt and to preserve the earth. You have to be intentional to be a light, to, to push out the darkness. We're to seek to show people the light of Jesus. But Jesus tells us why we need to be light. So he tells us that we're to be a light. He tells us that we're to be salt. But he tells us why. Look again at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So a city on a hill, it can't be hidden. A, 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 a lighthouse at night in a storm, it can't be hidden. A light in a house that's, that's set on a candle stand or something, when the power goes out, it cannot be hidden. It, you shouldn't put it under a bowl. But the way that we're going to be a city on a hill, the way that we're going to be a lamp in a dark house, is through our good deeds. And this is the way in which you display the light of Christ to the men and women of darkness that you work with all the time, that you associate with in your different groups that you're a part of. Through your good deeds that Jesus has given to you, you show His light. But Jesus is also clear on the motive of our good deeds. And this is something that we have to get right. Because you can certainly overemphasize your good deeds, can't you? There are certain groups that certainly overemphasize the fact, oh wow, you did, you did good deeds. Let's, let's pat ourselves on the back for our good deeds, right? But Jesus tells us the motive of our good deeds and where our good deeds, our good works have to push. So Jesus isn't saying, I want your light to shine in order to make yourself look good. I want all my disciples to look real good. No, because otherwise you could just grab the Pharisees, right? Because they looked really good all the time. But Jesus doesn't want us to do good deeds in order to make ourselves look good. Being a light for Christ and doing good works should never be to glorify ourselves. should never be to praise ourselves. But it should always be to praise and glorify God. But this is a problem for us as disciples. This is one of our struggles as disciples, because as disciples of Jesus, as people who like to put our hands to good deeds and to do certain things in our community, our society, or in our church, or whatever it is, we like to get the glory. Humans are natural glory hogs. We are. We, we want the credit. We want the pat on the back. We want the trophy, or, or whatever the case is. We want that. But Jesus wants us to give all the glory and all the praise to God, our good deeds direct and reflect and write up to God. When I think about those 21 men that were brutally killed for being followers of Jesus, I can't 
help but think that they were tremendous examples of being salt and light. When I think of that man named Bashir, whose brothers were among the executed, and you hear him say that he's proud of his brothers, and you hear him praying for the salvation of these terrorists, he's being salt, he's being light. When I think of the mother who said that she would invite her son's killers into her home and to ask God to open their eyes, I think salt, light. These Christians, in the face of persecution, are willing to come into contact with the rot. They're willing to be salt. In spite of part of their family being killed, they continue to press on for Jesus. Being salt and light in our communities and in our society as a whole may bring an element of persecution. Years down the road, it may bring an elevated level of persecution. That salt, being salt, might sting the rottenness. The light may be blinding to those who are dwelling in darkness. Kind of like when you wake up, you turn the light on, and just you hate to see the light. Unbelievers hate to see the light. Unbelievers hate the salt to come in contact with rottenness. But persecution or no persecution, we're to be salt and light. We need to honestly assess where we are all personally. All of us in here need to assess where we are as salt and light. We need to assess where we are as a church. Are we effectively being salt and light? Again, if, if you pulled this church out of this town, would they care? Would they know? Would it bother them? How about you? If, if you're in your workplace or you're in your different associations or groups that you're a part of, if you, pull, if you pulled out, would it really even bother anybody? Would it be an issue? We need to be effectively preserving. We need to be effective lights for Christ. So pray with me now. Pray with me now that God will do this. Pray that he will cause us to be effective salt and light for his glory alone. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, I pray that you'll change our hearts. Grow us. There are so many areas to get involved with outside of these walls, outside of even ministering to one another. There are so many ways where we can seek to bring salt, to slow the decay, to seek to be light, to be a light for you, to to spread your gospel. Give us opportunity to do this. Help us to seek by your spirit, prod us, press us into different ministries or into different groups or associations, whatever the case is, help us to be salt and light here in this town. In Christ's name.